Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Okay, we're in Judges 16, picking up where we left off last week. Uh, the end of chapter 15 was kind of the end of the official account of Samson as judge. And it says, and he judged for 20 years. And then you get this odd little like tack on chapter. And when you put it with chapter 17, this odd little story about Micah and him setting up his own religion, like, again, in the chapter by chapter sense, you're like, why are these here? And why is this story about Delilah even in the Bible? It seems really out of place from the rest of the book. But if you look at the book of Judges from beginning to end, there's a narrative here that Israel has fallen apart. And so this epilogue in chapter 16, this kind of after story about Samson, is really to say, okay, Samson judged for 20 years, but even at the end of his life, this guy didn't live in holiness. And it was busted. And then you get the story of Micah, which is just off the rails next week. And what the author is trying to show is why Israel ended up in Babylon. And what was happening? Why did they need a king? instead of judges. Why did it not go the way God told them it would go with Joshua? And there's this spiral of descending decadence that happens. So this is the, it gets more and more decadent. So tonight we're talking about sex, murder, all sorts of good things. Um, and it starts with verse one, the um, Samson that we get to see it towards the end of his life. Uh, verse one, now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there, and he went into her. So we start off on, on a great note. Um, we all know what these things mean. I won't dig into the Hebrew on this very, very long. It's exactly what you think it is. But the way it's phrased was just, now Samson went to Gaza. Gaza's a Philistine territory at this time. It's still not under Israeli control today. So it's still a region that's not really uh, under Israel's control. Going to see a harlot, the way it's phrased is like, Again, almost. So that word now at the beginning, it's like, so Samson saw harlots. And there's this generality to it. Like this was just part of this guy's life. So even though he's judge of Israel and telling people what God says is right and wrong, he's not living it. Or he's not conveying it right to the people of Israel. But at the very least, he's got a conflict with the Philistines, which is one of the last groups of people Israel is supposed to get out of that land. So he initiates something that really David's going to finish later on in the Bible. So he went, he saw, and then he went in. <laughs> like there's a progressive slide to sin in the first sentence. Um, why is he even there? Like when he went to Timnah in chapter 14, he went, he saw, he sinned. This is how sin works. You warm up to it, you cozy into it, you watch it and look at it, you're enticed by it, and then you do it. And there's people that think they can look at or think about sin and not actually end up doing it. And Jesus nailed that right on the head and said, if you even think about it, as far as God's concerned, you've already sullied yourself because you're desiring something that's not God. And anything that's not God that grabs your heart and your attention is something that's at conflict with God and it becomes sin. Verse two, when the Gazites were told, 
people from Gaza, Philistines. Samson has come here, exclamation point. This is an emphatic. They surrounded the place and they lay in wait for him all night at the city gate. They were quiet all night saying, in the morning when it's daylight, don't whisper like that, we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight. Excuse me. Then he arose at midnight and he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gateposts and he pulled them up, bar and all. And he put them on his shoulders and he carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. So it makes you wonder how many of these stories about Samson were there? And and at the beginning, when they say, Samson's come here, he's legendary at this point. He does this kind of stuff. It's absolutely miraculous. There's no logical explanation for a single human being pulling up an entire gate in a gatepost. Imagine a medieval city. These things weren't meant to be pulled up. They were defense mechanisms. So the fact that he's doing this makes no sense in any sort of naturalistic way. The only thing that explains it is miraculous, and that is the context of judges. They're presenting a miracle to us. Um, So there are famous miracles, and then there's Samson pulling up a gatepost miracles. This is not a huge famous miracle in the Bible, but it is one all the same. Um, All this trouble Samson is having seems to be initiated by his sin. A lot of these conflicts he's having with the Philistines maybe could be avoided if he wasn't constantly going down to the Philistines for one kind of sin that gets him involved in other kinds of sin. And just a thought, like how that ties him in there. Um, In Genesis 39, 12, um, when Joseph was caught with Potiphar's wife, you remember this story? Mm -hmm. What did Joseph do? He ran. He ran the heck out of there. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got the heck out of there. Samson in reflection, is doing the exact opposite. He's going to her, and he keeps getting into these situations. So if we're going to learn from the wise, that's great. We can also learn from fools, but it's the same lesson. Run from sin. Don't sit and play with it. So verse 4, afterward it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Um, And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said, Entice him and find out where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Delilah is the only named woman uh, in in this narrative with Samson. We don't know his wife's name, but we do know her name. She gets to be known as famous. We don't know why that's the case, and there isn't a lot of theory as to why she gets named and other women and judges don't get named. Um, We know Deborah's named, and we know that Samson's wife is not. We don't really know the connection. Jephthah's daughter is not named, but um, Jephthah is. Valley of Sorek is actually pretty close to where the Danites would be camping. Uh, It's the same as Timnah, the same territory. Um, It's a Semitic name. Um, So it's clearly an area that Philistines have dominance over, but it's not one that necessarily has a Philistine name. The question of we want to know where his great strength lies seems to be a question the Philistines haven't worked out yet. So Samson hasn't put the Lord out in front. Throughout his whole life, he's not let people know that my strength comes from the Lord God Almighty. He just takes credit for it. We've seen that in past chapters. So the fact that they're still asking says two things. One, he hasn't told them, I get my strength from the Lord God Almighty, which would have made him a better judge. Two, 
it's not apparent from his physical looks that he's strong. If you see somebody built like Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, nobody says, where does he get his strength from? It comes from those arms, right, that are built like cannons, right? Nobody asks when a strong-looking person does strong things. But when you look like, Grant, you're a pretty big guy. When you look like a small guy who I will not name, People say, where does the strength come from? Like, how does that person do those kinds of things? It doesn't make sense. So that's what they're trying to find out. They're actively trying to do it. It says the lords of the Philistines. So it would be, there would be five lords of the Philistines, according to historical record. Um, uh, Ekron, Ascalon, Ascaloth, Gaza, and, and, and Gary would be the areas of the Philistines. There would have been five of these lords. So if they all come together and pitch in, 1,100 pieces of silver is about 140 pounds of silver. That's not a small amount. Um, so the point is, they intend to harm him. They actually want to bind him for the purpose of afflicting him. They don't just want to kill the guy. They want to torture the guy. So that speaks to their heart and the evil that's in their hearts towards Samson. They want to make this man pay in pain for what he's done to them. So Delilah says to Samson, verse 6, please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. It's nice doing a chapter where pretty much we've heard this since we were 10, right? Like we all know this chapter pretty well. And Samson said to her, if they buy me with seven fresh bowstrings not yet dried, then I will become weak like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not dried, and she bound him with them. And now the men were lying in wait, staying in her room, and she's, how does that happen? How do you have a room with people lying in wait and Samson doesn't notice or pick up on that? Which says something about Samson's ability to tune in to others again. Like he's not aware of his surroundings. And we've seen indications of that in the other chapters around Samson. This guy doesn't read people very well. And if he's in a room and there's people literally hiding in the corner, probably giggling and shuffling a little bit, and sniffing and breathing, and he's not picking up that there's other people in the room. He is entirely focused on her. And that can be understandable. Most guys in the room can say that that can happen, that he is not focused on anything but Delilah. So they're lying in wait, staying with her in the room, and she said to him, Philistines, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. This should be the end of the relationship with Delilah. Like a good self-respecting dude, this would be a test for her and she just failed the test. Not only did she give it up, but she let guys hide in her room to jump up and surprise him. This would not be a fun way to wake up if you've ever been stirred to wake in a, in a rough, abrupt way. Um, this is bad, but when somebody clearly tosses you to the wolves, you don't date them a second time. Like, that doesn't happen with most people. Um, however, as we know from verse 4, love can make people pretty stupid. And one of the great lessons of Samson and Delilah is that human beings have a tendency of putting their relationships with men and women above their relationship with God. It happens all the time. It's so common, it's ridiculous that we think that somehow our relationship between men and women should trump or come before our relationship with God. Successful marriages are built when both people put God first. Then they can be a healthy marriage. If both people don't put God first, that marriage is going to have problems, right? So love makes you dumb. We can know that from this chapter. Um, the seven fresh bowstrings 
is likely correlating, notice the number seven is here, it's a divine perfection when we see that number. So if that's true and you look at verse 13, there's seven locks of hair being tied up. The bowstrings in the ancient world would be, would be animal intestines. So you take animal intestines, big long strips of nice sinewy stuff, you dry them out and then you weave them around each other and you've got a boom, a bowstring that can shoot arrows. But animal intestines would actually be a dead animal. And remember, Samson took a Nazarite vow. It's one of the th three things he's not supposed to touch. So some, a lot of people feel like, or when they read this, it's that Samson's lying to Delilah. I don't think he's lying at all. He's actually giving her one of the three things that a Nazarite can't do. He's not supposed to touch dead things. So when he's wrapped up in dead things, you know, he's broken the Nazarite vow. And, but it's not a public thing. People can't see it. So it's a secret thing that's there. He's playing with her. He's giving her this idea. He's touched dead lions in the past, and he didn't lose his strength then. So we get this image of somebody who's God's blessed with things, and God blesses him every time he uses that strength. But he hasn't removed his hand from Samson. He continues to let Samson use the gifts he's given him, even when Samson's living in sin. This is a confounding theological concept, right? Isn't it automatic that when you sin, God takes away gifts? And no, actually, you can be, there's a lot of people in the church that live in sin for a long time and continue to bless the church, but they do it with the hollowness of sin behind it. And, and it's something that actually hurts the church in amazing ways when those people fall. But you, we see it all the time. So the biggest sin here is that Samson's presuming that God will always be with him in these sins that he's doing, that he'll never fall, that he can continue to get away with it in secret even though he's sinning and that God's going to let that happen forever. And God can be merciful and patient, but he doesn't endure that forever. Those people fall. And at some point, God takes away their hand and what's private becomes public. So either way, Samson's deceived himself, either in presumption about what God's gifted him with or in the degree to which God's going to have mercy and grace for his sin. But Samson's presuming. He's presuming he can do things without doing it God's way and that God will continue to bless him in that. And that's a huge presumption. So we got the sin of lust. We got the sin of murder. We got the sin of breaking vows, which Samson's doing here. We also have the sin of presumption. He's just presuming God's going to always be there because he was once before. So verse 10, we get to round two of this. This is a great just narrative too. And I almost feel bad putting in so much commentary because it reads like a great story all by itself. Um, but Paul would be mad if I don't give any commentary. Um, verse 10, then Delilah says to Samson, look, you've mocked me and told me lies. I don't think he lied to her. Like he told her the truth, like touching dead things breaks his vow. Now, please tell me what you may be bound with. So he said to her, if they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak like any other man. Therefore, Delilah took new ropes, bound him with them, and he said to them, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in wait, staying in the room, and the men were lying in wait, staying in the room, same as last time. But he broke them off uh, his arms like a thread. So just a, he's just so clueless. If they jumped out of the cushions and rugs last time, when he comes over to her house the second time, wouldn't he be kicking the pillows a little bit? <laughs> Like, are you doing it again? And it's the same situation. But he's just assuming he can beat anybody. 
that him and God can just do anything else. It's almost like Samson's amusing himself here, uh, that he doesn't really care what's going to happen to him because he knows he's good. Um, here's the thing with the new ropes. <laughs> Out of curiosity, because of the bowstring thing, I'm wait, wait, what's the second part of the Nazarite vow? You can't touch dead things in you. Can't, not only can you not drink wine, you're supposed to not even touch the kernels of it. You're not supposed to be around the vineyard. You're not supposed to have anything to do with the vine in contact with you. What are ancient ropes made with in the old world? In this part of the old world, one of the top things, they could make it with flax. They could make it with papyrus threads and weaves. And they made it with grapevines. So one of the things in this part of the world, and we know we're living in a village that had grapevines because remember he was down looking at the vineyard a couple chapters ago. So it is likely that you take the grapevines, you let them dry out, then you moisten them and you put them in water and they become fairly flexible. And then you can weave grapevines. You pull the little fibers off them, big long fibers. You weave them all together and you make new ropes. So his second thing, he's actually telling her that the second aspect of the Nazarite vow gets broken. But it's private and it's hard to see this particular vow because it's not the hair, right? So the new ropes that have never been used uh, means in, in the Hebrew, the word used there means occupied. Um, so to occupy those ropes would be to make them unclean. Um, but Samson's thinking is invincible. Doesn't matter. If he can touch the grapevine and continue to have strength, he's good. So Delilah says to Samson in verse 13, until now you've mocked me and told me lies. Notice how she's accusing him all the time. Again, like, wake up, buddy. This is not the woman you want to spend your life with. Um, Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of the loom. So she wove it tightly with the batten of the loom. Batten's the big bar you use to pound down the fibers when you weave something. A loom takes like an entire room. And we haven't really changed this. It's still looms take almost a whole room because you weave the fabrics in and out of the cross fabrics. So she's got the cross fabric. She set that up on the loom. And to weave the hair in would be to take his lock of hair and weave it through the fibers and then take the batten and you pound those down in nice and tight. And when you do that, you make a rug that can last for decades. I mean, it's a really powerful piece of fabric you make when you weave rugs on a loom. So, and then she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, third time. But he awoke from his sleep, pulled out the batten, which is like pulling out the gatepost of the, I mean, that's a massive piece of wood that he's just ripping out with his neck muscles. And he pulled out the batten and the web from the loom. So it rips the whole thing apart. Uh, this is the third one. It's getting closer and closer and closer to completely decimating the Nasserite vow. On this one, the Nasserite vow is he's not supposed to cut his hair. So in doing this, it doesn't say the hair got cut but he's playing with his hair and he's getting closer to the very public display that he represents God. So the private display stuff, God's had a lot of mercy on. But the public display stuff, we're going to see that's where God kind of draws the line. So the seven locks on his head this is the third element to the Nazarite vow. It's a visible symbol that gets used. I would say in this case, it's not the sin that has warped Samson's thinking it's his desire for sin that's warped his thinking. And that he's playing this game with Delilah because he wants her company and he wants to be around her. And, and, he's, and he's letting her affect him instead of the other way around. 
Um, one of the warped thinking around sin is this idea of, I can keep doing this and I can keep getting away with it. I can keep doing things in private that offend my God and God's not going to do anything about it. Because God just has mercy. He's an all-loving God. He never judges, right? And we've seen in the Old Testament, there are points where God judges, like Noah, right? There is a point where God loses patience with this kind of thing. And that's part of the story of Samson. That idea that sin won't hurt us, that we're never going to get hurt. It's never going to be a problem. Go ahead and weave my hair into the loom. I can get that intimate with your stuff. The other thing is, if somebody's grabbing a lock of your hair, you're not sleeping. He's fake sleeping. You don't sleep through that. He's letting her play with his hair. And you, we all know he's wide awake while she's doing that. There's no surprises. He probably knows that at this point there's guys hiding in the closet, snickering to themselves. This is a big game for Samson, just like when he did the riddle at the wedding. So it's the image, I think, of an abusive relationship. You got Samson accepting pain and hurt and compromise to his soul, and he's continuing to do it because he's in an abusive relationship with Delilah. So in, in psychology today, we kind of unpack some of that stuff. But this is where love gets twisted. This is not the kind of love that God wanted for a man and a woman. This is manipulative and hurtful and mean and one person actively trying to hurt the other person. This is evil. And we, we can see that in the book of Judges, Israel's gotten to this point where even their judge is just in these kind of evil relationships. And it is, of course a non-Jewish person that's kind of feeding this at this point. It's an image of Israel. Israel is getting further and further in. They're getting blinder and blinder. They're getting deeper and deeper. Just wait till the next chapter. They're so lost in their presumption, they've forgotten what holiness even looks like. And they're letting their souls get woven in with the baton pounding it down, and they're just putting up with it. And it's a sad kind of image. Uh, Proverbs 26.11, as a dog returns to his vomit, so the fool goes back to their folly. This is humanity, people. We continue to make mistakes over and over and over in history. And any historian is like, how do you look at humanity and think it's redeemable? And the answer is it's not. Outside of Jesus, humanity is eating its own vomit all the time. And it's a sad image. And we should look at this not as a comedy sketch with Samson, but as a really sad place for a man of God to be getting treated like this. And he just puts up with it like a victim, right? Verse 15. Then she said to him, how can I say I love you when your heart is not with me? Right? Because he's, he's gotten her three times now. And Samson then apparently They've been knocking around the words, I love you, but they don't seem to have the same meaning that they do in Leviticus. Like the very definition of love is getting twisted here. So it's kind of sad. He loves the thing that rejects him. And fools do this. Fools think, I'm going to be the first one to outwit sin. I can dabble with this and beat it because I'm that great. And that's what fools think. And there's no humility here. It echoes the theme of the whole book. How can Israel say, I love you, when their hearts go astray from God? It's an image of the relationship Israel has with God. How can I say, I love you, when you keep going astray from me? You've mocked me three times, and you haven't told me where your great strength lies. Verse 16, and it came to pass, when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him like a dripping faucet, book of Proverbs, so that his soul was vexed to death, right? She just kept nagging him. And at some point, he's just, oh, I can't handle it anymore. 
So this, by the way, is virtually the same nagging that his wife did back in his younger years. He's in the same situation. He hasn't grown at all since he was a young man. No growth, no development, no maturity, no guts, no backbone. He's in the same situation here where he's getting manipulated. And it came to pass implies that it took time, that there was a gap here between the third and fourth situation. And being vexed to death means exactly what you think it means. Like it, He's tortured to the point where he'd rather die than listen to her anymore. And that, that, that's a sad point in an abusive relationship too. Like at some point, death is better than the relationship. This is not good. This is bad. Verse 17, so he told her, that he told her all his heart. Because he was felt that way, he just told her everything and he gave it up. And he said to her, no razors ever come to my head for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. This is the first time Samson brings up God in public. He tells her, this is about me and God. It's not private anymore. He's putting God in the middle of the conversation. From my mother's womb, if I'm shaven, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak like any other man. So he, he tells her this last piece. How he knows he'll become weak, we don't know, because in the last three instances, he said the exact same thing. So we can assume that he doesn't think this is going to work either, maybe. Or maybe he's okay to just be weak because he really doesn't want to serve God anymore. And he doesn't want the strength. So all this tempting and stuff, he'd rather just hang out with Delilah and not be a judge anymore. So either way, he tells her about the hair shaving thing. So in verse 7, you had the bowstrings with dead stuff. Verse 11, you had likely grapevines as ropes being used. And in verse 13, he mentioned his hair. Now he talks about the shaving of the hair. Last piece of the Nazarite vow. Samson still doesn't leave the situation. This baffles me. He doesn't leave. He would rather get into this than to leave this situation that he's in with this woman. Have you ever met someone who can't break up with somebody, but everybody in their life knows they should break up? Like, stop dating that person. They're really bad for you. And all the friends know it, but nobody says anything, right? With Samson, you'd probably say something to him, but he's just going to keep going back to it. Um, he says that he would become weak like any other man, which it seems almost to me like Samson's okay with that. He's tired of standing out and being different. And I think we can all resonate with that a little bit. When you take a stand for God, you become different, and that can be tiresome. That's the labor of love that we have for the kingdom. And sometimes it's like, I just want to be like the world. I don't want to have the strength of God in me because it's, it's, it can become wearisome. So just a thought. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her her heart, so she sees it and she thinks, okay, now I can kill this guy. So he bears his heart, puts God in the middle of it, and she's still ready to pull the dagger on him. This is stunning. I can sever this guy from God, and I can do it for this money, this silver she's been offered. So she's just going to turn him in for silver. Sounds like somebody else we know in the New Testament, right? She sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. So they're all pretty sure this is going to be it. And then she lulled him to sleep on her knees. Being a husband who loves my wife, I get this. You're tired, it's the end of the day, you lay down in your wife's lap and she just does what I call head tinglies. I'm out in a minute. There's nothing better. So she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave the head off. This I don't get. And the, the shaves off the seven locks on his head. 
No way does the head get shaved and you're out cold sleeping, unless he was really, really drunk beforehand, right? So this is pretty hard to do unless there's drugs involved. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. This is sad. And then she said, Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. So he did assume that God would just keep being with him. And then he could just keep playing this game. But he didn't know that the Lord had departed from him. This should be a terrifying sentence for anybody who loves the Lord. That there is a point where the Lord can just say, have it your way. I'm done. And the Lord can depart from people. This is the message you don't typically hear when people are trying to tell you about God's love. Is that there are limits. And the human hubris that Samson has has tested God's patience for a long time. His mercy has been great, but God's going to pull his hand off him. Notice that he departs from him, but at the end of the chapter, he's back there. It's like he can lift his hand of power upon Samson, but he still loves Samson. And it's still, he's still watching Samson. He's still listening to Samson. So it says he departed from him, but that implies that he pulled that strength away from Samson. But we know from the rest of the chapter, he didn't really leave Samson. He's just thinking, for Samson's heart to change, I got to back away from this guy and show him that there's limits to, my, to, to what I'm going to put up with. So she lulled him to sleep. Uh, strong implication of drugs or, or being drugged or drunk. Uh, and yes, in the ancient world, they absolutely knew how to put things in drinks that would knock people out. So that's not a stretch at all, especially for people that would be in the prostitution business. So it says for a man, actually, there's an article there. It's the man. Um, what verse am I in when it says that? Thank you. Love him and called for a man that had him shave off his head. I don't know how your translation looks there, but it's a definite article for a singular person. Um, so the person, the man that would come up would be a representative. And when it says the man with a definite article, and we're not talking about the lords of the Philistines, this is likely a spiritual leader or a priest that came in to do this almost ritualistically. Make no mistake about it, when Samson brought up God, this isn't about Samson and Philistines anymore. It's about Yahweh versus Ashkeloth. This is a battle of the gods at this point. So likely when you see that definite article, uh, most scholars believe that that's a spiritual leader that would have come in. The man of the town uh, would come in and do this thing. Uh, So the pagan leader dominates the man of God and does so by cutting off all his hair. He's lulled, he's called, he's shaved, and then the torment comes. The goal of evil is not just to beat good people, it's to torment them and drag them through it. Have you ever seen when godly people fall, how the media loves to just drag them through it? It's not like, oh shoot, he should step down from ministry, but keep coming to church and renew his faith and get back on track. It's not only should he leave ministry, we should just destroy their life and everything about them. Um, So that torment is absolutely what evil does. When they get a purchase on something, they go for the torment, nothing less. So she shows her true nature. The Philistines show their true nature. Um, God's power isn't in the symbols and it's not in the hair. But there is something about when we say we serve the Lord God Almighty and then do sin on the side, that there is an element to where God is going to make decisions about how to do things. So he doesn't have magic hair. And I think that 
I don't know why, but when I was a kid in Sunday school, I always heard this story as like he had magic hair. But he does, it's not about that. It's God's power and God choosing when to give the power or not. So the Nazarite vow is broken in the previous two instances, three instances, but this time it's broken publicly and it's done at the hands of the man, right? So there's a different kind of tone to this fourth thing. Um, his hair would separate him from the world visibly. When he shaves his head, he would not be separated from the world visibly as much. One of the ways they fought lice in the ancient world is guys would often shave their head completely. In fact, they didn't really go to the barber. Like if you got a haircut, they pretty much took it all off and you'd get maybe three haircuts a year, right? So cutting of the hair in the ancient world would have been, there would have been a lot of Philistines that would have been bald. So to grow the hair out would look distinct from other people. So he loses his distinction. He loses being set apart. Um, and he becomes as strong as the people he spends his time with. Which, again, in the Christian world is a great spiritual lesson. You'll only be as strong as the people you hang out with, spiritually speaking, and you'll be as weak and sinful as the people you hang out with. We are social creatures as humans. Very few of us are mavericks. You are, and, and I always like the idea in the, the movie, the, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, the wife is talking to another lady, and she says, well, yeah, he's the head of the house but I'm the neck and I turn him any way I want. <laughs> Husbands and wives make each other strong. You're only as strong as that relationship. Best friends, you make each other strong. Brothers and sisters, you test and, and make each other stronger by keeping each other accountable. Um, God says where two or three are gathered, I'm there. There's a reason God wants us to be social in our faith and to connect. It's important to have things like murder mystery parties because we spend time together and we get to know each other, we become friends with each other, we gain power and strength by being around other believers that are living holy and set-apart lives. That's just how it works, right? I'm trying to think of another verse at the top of my head. Maybe you can help me, but it's as iron sharpen iron, so... Finish the verse for me. So one man sharpens another. It's how it works, right? It's a very consistent idea. Who's Samson been hanging out with? Nobody, right? He's a, he's a vacant person because he doesn't have those godly friendships or connections. This is the state of Israel. The judge of Israel has nobody else that's godly surrounding him. Nobody else that could maybe come in and say, hey, brother, you need to dump that girl. You know, that some time that's passed, she's bad for you. She's gonna, you're going to get killed by her. Stop it. Knock it off. But he doesn't have anybody like that in his life. So it's not the hair. It's that he's set apart for God and we can learn how powerless he becomes when God says, okay, I'm done. He thinks he's going to go out like he did before, but he doesn't control God. Another great spiritual lesson. We don't control God. God controls us. It doesn't work both directions. We either serve God at his pleasure or we're not very helpful to the kingdom and he doesn't need to have much. To, he doesn't need us. He wants us. It's a huge difference. He loves and adores us he wants us to be part of the service of the kingdom, but he doesn't need us to do anything. He needs us to love one another and to love him above everything, right? That's the command. That's what he's asking us to do. If he wants to put us in a useful situation, he'll do that. Verse 21, then the Philistines took him and they put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. So the torturing begins. It's not irony, it's symmetry that the thing that caused him to sin that he saw and he saw and he went and he sinned 
it's the first thing that they go after. So maybe it's the first thing of redemption for him. The thing that caused him to sin just got plucked out. And maybe that's better for Samson that he can't see the ladies. Maybe he doesn't need to be looking at the ladies because it just causes him to fall. So he, we started that way back in 14 verse 1 and, and verse 3 where he keeps seeing things and she looked good to him. And that's the first thing they do is they take out his eyes. So that heart and those eyes put him into bondage. They bound him with bronze fetters. And, and bronze is again an image of sin throughout the Old Testament. It is here again too. He became a grinder in the prison. Interesting word, right? What's a grinder do? There are two possible interpretations of a grinder. Interpretation number one, a grinder is someone, when you have a huge millstone, you can, you can tie an ox to that millstone to turn it so that it grinds the wheat out. It's a, it's a grueling job. In prisons, they would hook humans up to the wheel and they'd turn them into grinders, right? So this is a way that you would, you would take somebody who's strong and do that. But Samson's not strong anymore. Why? He probably couldn't move the bar unless there were like 40 other grinders with him. Second major interpretation. A grinder is, in the Hebrew, the word tahan. In the Hebrew, it actually means breeder. So in a prison, if you had someone that you thought make, might make strong soldiers, you could breed them. It's absolutely German Holocaust kind of weirdness. But if you're living in the world without God's law... You got a guy who's strong and he can lift up a gatepost. Why don't we make a thousand of these guys? So they bred him, which meant they enslaved the women and they enslaved the men and they forced them to have sex. And they would breed them just like they did animals. So he became, again, uh, he dreamed of sex. Now he can have more, enough sex until it makes him sick, right? So his eyes get plucked out. He can't see and enjoy what he used to see and enjoy, but now he's going to get, he wanted, he wanted what the world had to offer, now he's going to get it so much that it absolutely destroys him. You can see the symmetry of that second interpretation. If you don't want to get into that gruesome or R-rated version of it, he's just moving a millstone. <laughs> just go with that one. But the word grinder in the Hebrew means breeder or concubine. Samson's sin then is that he worships sex and adultery and now he's getting all of it he can stomach. And this is the nature of sin. This is how it works. Sin, his sin comes home to roost, you could say. He didn't want God, and now he doesn't have God, and he just gets it. There's a perfect justice to what the Philistines are doing right now. However, verse 22, I love the howevers in the Bible. God's not gone either. And this isn't a story about Samson. It's a story about God and his nation Israel. The hair of his head began to grow again, after it had been shaven. I think this is a great line because we can regenerate. The sin doesn't end our story. We can repent and renew. And now that he's blind, he's not going to struggle with seeing the ladies anymore. Now that he's a grinder, he's not going to struggle with adultery anymore. Those two sins are getting beat out of his life in a very cruel, harsh way. So maybe there's some hope for this guy. Verse 22 is such a verse of hope. We can heal. And this idea being embedded in the Old Testament, like this is not the harsh God that judges. This is the harsh God that removes his hand so his servant can come to love him again and serve him in a powerful way. This is a God that leaves a line of hope like that. His hair began to grow. 
right? We can renew and rebuild that relationship with God. So that doesn't say that sin doesn't leave its scars. A lot of us know this. We can sin and actually leave scars in our life that don't go away after we're saved. They're still there. Uh, If your right hour causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better and more profitable if one of your members perish than your whole body is cast into hell, Matthew 5.25. That's exactly what happens to Samson. He's going to perish, but he's going to do it in a right relationship with God. And in Hebrews, he's actually listed as one of the champions of the faith because his hair began to grow. He could start at this place of absolute brokenness and God can use him in that place. We can fail and there are immediate lasting impacts to sin, but we can repent and God can make great profit from what's left of our lives. We can start today to live for God and God can use every day we have left. And if you wake up tomorrow morning and you're still breathing, God can use that day. It doesn't matter what happened yesterday. And that message of hope is just laced through the Bible and I love that. Isaiah 61.3, he can make beauty from ashes. He can take what's dead and he can turn it into something beautiful. And that's, I think, what's going on with Samson. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered together and they offered a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, to rejoice. Dagon is the fish god. We talked about him when we did Jonah. You can go back and have fish god lessons in the book of Jonah if you want to. Um, But he's a god of fertility. And given that Samson is now visibly here, verse 24, it is likely that he's being used as a concubine in the pagan rituals. They're going to put him on display. So this is extremely vulgar and nasty, but it's what they did, right? So they are going to use him at their temples as a big feast. They would get drunk at these feasts and they would have a bunch of sex and they would watch other people have sex. So you would think, by the way, this is the other thing with the Philistines. Sin is also presumptive. You would think if I were a Philistine lord, I'd say, "Uh uh-uh, every single morning you will shave that man's head. Like, wouldn't you think? that they would continue to shave his head every day. They would hire the man to be wholly dedicated to this guy that can kill a thousand people with one jawbone. But they forget that and they let his hair grow back, which seems like an odd oversight to me. Again, my weird geek thoughts. And they said, oh God, our God has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. Did Dagon beat Jehovah? Or the biblical account is that Jehovah removed himself from Samson. Dagon just beat a human, right? So, and if Dagon's even real, right? So when the people saw him, they praised their God, small g, for they said, our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, and the one who multiplied our dead. Notice that this is a spiritual claim. It's not just about Samson being a bad guy that they want to torture. It is instantly about Dagon beating Yahweh. It's instantly a spiritual dialogue and Samson represents Jehovah in the story. So they're literally singing this. There should be quotes around that. When it says, and they said, they made this into a song. So they're they're creating this as something they can sing and recognize the effect of it. They've escalated this from Delilah to Dagon being the champion. Um, and Samson's sin is not only not private anymore, it's on display before all of the people that he wanted to be friends with. So all the people he's trying to please are now just mocking him. It brings to shame not only Jehovah, but the whole people of Israel. And it hurts the entire fellowship of the saints. I got to imagine there's still some good people left in Israel that follow the Lord and serve him, you know? 
like Jephthah's daughter hanging out at the temple. There's some good people hanging out, and this disgraces all of them. When one godly person who should be in fellowship with other saints falls in sin publicly, it hurts the whole body. Uh, and that's just kind of a tragedy. So, um, and here, I think the song in verse 24, why would anybody want to worship a God who's weak? And I, I think for the Philistines to celebrate this is to put their God over Jehovah is uh, psychologically building themselves up and, and diminishing this Israelite God to the Israelites. So it happened in verse 25, when their hearts were merry, uh, strong implication of getting drunk, they said, call for Samson that he may perform for us. Again, lending to the second definition of grinder. So they called Samson from the prison and he performed for them. And they stationed him between the pillars in temples in the, in the Across the Mediterranean, the Greek architecture, which the Philistines would have been Greek emigres, so people settling from the area Greek, they started to do this construction method with columns. And they would take wafer slices and stack them up, and they would build columns. If they could do two huge columns for a temple, then everything else was little tiny columns because the two columns would hold the weight of the roof against the back wall. So those two columns essentially hold up the entire structure, but they're massive, huge pillar columns. So that architectural style was being developed at this period in history, and the Bible records it pretty accurately when it mentions these two pillars, um, and archaeology bears that to be true. So they stationed him between the two pillars, and Samson said to the lad who held him by the hand, so it's kind of sad that he's getting led around by a little kid, let me feel the pillars which support the templars so I can lean on them. So again, this is not the image of a physically strong man. He needs to lean on something. There's a little boy guarding him. They're not scared of him anymore. Uh, the pillars would be these big columns, primary support, verse 27. Now the temple was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching while Samson performed. So they climbed up on the roof of this thing, uh, which would have been maybe 20, 30 feet up, uh, and they're watching down through the slats uh, to see this person perform. So the roof then would kind of go out over a little bit, and it would almost be like a gladiatorial kind of auditorium thing, like a ring that would kind of go around on all the pillars. So this roof that's there, supported by the main two pillars, about 3,000 people up on top. Um, so we have now set ourselves up for the end of the story. Verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. It's interesting that you see the God there, he's using the proper name Yahweh, Jehovah. So he's calling on the Israelite God in the center of this Dagon ritual. I get the image of him doing this and just in tears. Like realizing his life's come to absolute desolation around his own sin. And he's praying this likely while he's performing. And he's just calling out to God in the middle of this disaster. And he says, strengthen me, I pray, just this once. Oh God, that I can with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. Not only is he recognizing at this point where his strength comes from, he's not taking it for granted anymore. There's kind of an honest sentiment coming out. We have these glimpses from Samson the idea of taking vengeance on the Philistines is good, 
to do it for his own two eyes is selfish. So, okay, he's not a mature believer. He's still praying that way. But verse 29, Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple and he braced himself against them, one on his right hand, the other on the left. And this is where you get the big movie scene. Ah, and he's pushing hard. I don't think he pushed hard at all. I think when God's power showed up, I don't think he was straining to do this like in the movies. I think it was just boom. And he knocks these things over. 3,000 people on top of the roof would aid in this effort a little bit, especially if they're rocking the place. Uh, so he's going to raise the roof, literally. Eh? That's, that's there. Then Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might. There's the straining. And the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than the people that he killed during his life. So ends Samson. Uh, wasted potential. Could have been a lot better. Killing 3,000 Philistines does not eliminate the Philistines. They're still around to plague Israel. So he doesn't complete what he started, but he has successfully picked a fight with, it, with the Philistines. Israel and the Philistines no longer get along. He also just killed the five lords of the Philistines. That's a massive setback for raiding and taking Israelite crops, right? So this is going to decimate their leadership structure. He shows a willingness to actually sacrifice himself to take out some Philistines. So we haven't seen that from Samson before, just that at this point I'd rather die in service to you than live in service to the Philistines. And I think for us to repent, we have to get to that point. I'd rather just not live at all if I have to live in my sin. Or Lord, pull me out of this mess and every day I have is yours. But either way, my life's over. And I give it up. I sacrifice my life for your life. And that's kind of the trade he makes there at the end. This is the moment of faith that Hebrews 11.32, I think, talks about. Samson's faith here, his prayer and his faith, this is the singular moment in this guy's life where he stands out as doing the right thing. Um, this in last chapter, he had a very similar prayer of repentance that made him a judge. So he thinks more of God than himself here, you can argue, um, and God accepts it. It's a small, simple, pure, humble prayer, and God just responds to it, which means God was listening. He took away the strength and the gifting he'd given Samson, but he didn't leave Samson. He's still there. So God accepts this repentance. Samson calls on the Lord. He humbles himself. And Elohim, the creator God of the universe, responds to him. And that's exactly what the New Testament preaches for us. If we call upon the, Lord, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. It's a promise. So we come, at that, we come with that kind of attitude, like Samson says here, and like my life's over, I would rather live for you, Lord, than, than die every single day with these Philistines. So we have that. This shouting out the name of the Lord in this prayer too announces to whatever survivors there were that Jehovah actually beats Dagon. Like this messes the party up. Think of the effect of this. The residual effect of this, if you think forward, one little kid that has no physical signs of strength takes out Goliath and shouts for the name of Jehovah, Yahweh, the Philistine army runs. That's a rational thing to do when this is in your history. Does that make sense? Like this really sets up David and Goliath. Because Samson's a grown man. David's just a kid. He shouts the name of Yahweh, kills Goliath, 
And the Philistine army says, we want nothing to do with this because they remembered that only one Israelite with the power of God can defeat thousands of Philistines. They're not stupid. They have a cultural memory. So when that kid says, for the name of Jehovah and Goliath drops, they're done. They don't want to get beat up with a slingshot. You know, jawbone was bad enough. What's a kid going to do with a slingshot? There's more stones on the ground. This is the Middle East. And they run. And they are right to run because the power of God actually is okay with those kinds of odds. And the Philistines have learned who's in charge. So Dagon does not win the day. The party ends very badly. And the one guy in the room calling on the name of Jehovah actually wins a physical battle and 3,000 Philistines die. Think of the effect of that. This would be legendary in their history. So they have to imagine with this unnamed kid, name's David, we know that from the word, but they don't even know the name of this kid. But they're thinking in their heads, do we have another Samson on our hands? If so, we want nothing to do with this. And they just take off. They leave the battlefield. I just think that's phenomenal. So if you're deceived in celebrating Dagon, Yahweh has a way of showing who's really in charge here at the height of these celebrations. The temple gets tore down. Um, <laughs> what's interesting is Samson didn't promise to tear down the temple, but he does. Jesus actually says to the Pharisees, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it back up. So where Samson tears the temple down of Dagon, Jesus is going to tear down the Jewish temple and rebuild it in three days. Can you imagine how angry that would get the Jewish people? Like you'd want to crucify a guy who says something like that. It's either true or you need to kill this heretic. Like Jesus said some things that would have stuck in the memory of the Jews too. So ripping down a temple is a Samson reference. And when Jesus says, yeah, you can tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. That's a pretty big claim when this is part of what every Jewish kid would have learned, right? So it's the opposite that for Samson, the dead that he killed was more in his death than his life. For Jesus, the people that are raised in his death is more than in his life. So you have some comparisons here where Jesus is kind of an, uh, kind of a... Uh, negative or a, a, a flip image of Samson and how this stuff works um, but in his death the temple gets torn down and at Jesus's death the curtain in the temple is ripped in two and the power of the mosaic priesthood is broken and there's a new era or a new covenant that begins verse 31 this is kind of just an epilogue sentence too and his brothers and all his father's household came down and took him and they brought him up to be buried between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of his father, Manoah. He had judged Israel 20 years. So that's the same way the last chapter ended. So we're just hearing about how he died in this, this last moment of his life. He goes out with a bang. Big lessons in Samson. There's great danger in the kingdom of being a loner. And the enemy can have their way with you when you're not connected to other believers. And I think that's part of the essential nature of why we get together and we meet. It's because we, we spark each other to, to the warmth of the Holy Spirit. And it's important that we're able to do that. Even when we're just talking about stuff, but we're just being with each other. Um, but every time you come to fellowship with other believers here or any other gathering, look around the room and think, who in this room can I minister to? Who can I encourage? Who can I just laugh with? Who needs a connection that doesn't have one? And I'm so like, I love that about this fellowship. Like I'll sit back sometimes just after prayer time and listen to you all laughing and talking with each other and I think that's the power of God's people gathering together and it's beautiful. 
It's a song that can be sung amongst God's people when they gather and do that. Uh, we're left with an Israel here who doesn't even recognize their deliverer. So Samson's got family in verse 31 that only shows up after he's dead. Like, where's Samson's family for the rest of the story other than when, you know, his birth with Manoah at the very beginning? So just this detachment that he has from his own family. Our first ministry circle, like Mandy proved this to us, the first group of people you minister to are your own family, your family and friends. And your family might be messed up. So you, God trust, is entrusting you with a great challenge. And you should take that as an honor. It might take you 20 years sometimes to get through to family that are living in sin. But that is one of the things that Samson just missed that opportunity to make those connections with his own family. Um, the judges, as of the book of Judges, kind of wrapping up the book of Judges, at this point in the book, all of the judges of the book of Judges have failed. None of them have successfully led Israel to this promised kingdom that they are given. And in fact, the promise of that kingdom doesn't get fulfilled until Matthew chapter 1, which we just did this morning. So we are seeing an end of kind of a, a season of the book of the Bible, of the Judges. And we're going to move into the kings, and that transition is going to happen. But before we get there at the end of Judges, we're going to have a few chapters that just show us the state of Israel. This is how messed up Israel is and how far they are from God. Uh, and that's going to come up here in the next chapter. Like, if you want to know how bad Israel has gotten, uh, we're going to see the worst of it in the next chapter. And that is fake religion. People calling themselves Israelites and they're living under their own law and it has nothing to do with what God's commanded them to do. And that is also, a, a really, when you look at the church in America today and, and I search my own heart, that's a, a, a really convicting chapter for me when we get into Micah and stuff, what's coming up in the next two chapters, is I never want to be in a place where I'm doing something that's not what God says. And my flesh is prone to not do what God says. And that's where Samson is. He's just living in the flesh. And it ends in destruction. And it ends in death. But I don't want to do that. I want to actually read God's word and do what it says and then live in life and live towards the Holy Spirit. And I get reaffirmed every day that that's the direction you're in because God fills you with life. And it's a beautiful thing when it happens that way. So Judges 16, amen? amen. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for your word. Help us not just to be readers of your word and to do it uh, empty-hearted and empty-headed. Lord, help us to take it seriously. Uh, there is nothing in your word that you put there by accident. Uh, and you want us to hear kind of the depravity of sin so that we avoid sin. Uh, so Lord, help us to do that. We all wrestle with it. We wrestle with our flesh. We wrestle with the offerings this world has, Lord, and we know their ends, uh, but we can still be uh, tempted with the eye, tempted with the heart. So Lord, I pray for each soul in this room, each person that's not here that's listening on the podcast. Lord, help us to resist sin and open our eyes when we're facing something like a Delilah situation in our life. Help us to not keep going back. Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters in Christ that can have the love to tell people the truth, that you're living in a way where this Delilah is going to kill you at some point. It's a devastating way to go. It's a, a path in life that ends in destruction. So Lord, I just pray that we have people like that in our lives that can point out our failings and keep us on the right track. Help us to be humble enough to hear those people. Um, Lord, we pray that we don't toy with our covenant with you. Lord, if we're consecrated to you like Samson was supposed to be, help us to not mess with that consecration, that we live as set apart for your kingdom and we let people know who we serve. 
Uh, help us to be unashamed of the name of Jesus Christ as our King and our Lord, so that you're not ashamed of us. Um, Lord, help us to be bold in those things, but humble and meek as we love and share with people about our love for you. Lord, help us to be unashamed. Uh, Lord, help us to not pursue after the world like Samson did and to just want things that the world has. Lord, help us to set our heart on you and appreciate the gifts of the Spirit in the ministry of the saints, that time in prayer and when you answer our prayers. Help us to delight in that more than the next movie. Help us to delight in the fellowship of the saints uh, more than the next uh, office party. Lord, help our hearts to be with you in all things because we appreciate what you give. Um, and we appreciate the life and the love that you give to us. Help us love one to another and minister one to another in prayer and in fellowship after this teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.